You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. For the last few weeks, we have been working through a series entitled For the Life of the World. And what we have been discussing over the past few weeks are the the Christian practices, the the spiritual disciplines. And our whole idea has been that God gave us these practices, not just for ourselves, not so that we could grow more narcissistic in the way that we pray and meditate and study and fast. And and when it comes to our, our money, no, he's given us these practices so that we will order our lives in the world for the life of the world. And we started with the practices of the church. But last week, we shifted our, our focus for the rest of this series. And for the, the rest of this series, what we are going to talk about is not the practices of the church, but the offices of the church. And last week, we started with the prophetic responsibility and identity of the church. And today, we engage the priestly responsibility of the church. We're going to talk about living as a priestly church for the life of the world. And the goal for the rest of this series at this point is to, is to lay out a theology of public life where we talk about the intersection of politics, society, the Christian life, and the life of the church. What kind of people are we supposed to be in the world as the church, as Christians? We talked about the prophetic role, the role of truth tellers, the role of those who speak into the error and the brokenness of the world around us. And today we talk about the priestly role of the church. And we're going to hit this through two points. We're going to see our priestly identity and our priestly responsibility. So let's look at our first point, our priestly identity. Now, if you're reading through the book of Hebrews, one of the things that you will that you will walk away with in terms of the impact of the book on you is this idea that this writer spends a lot of time developing the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. He is determined to drive home for his listeners the idea that Jesus is their high priest, their representative Before the Lord God Almighty. And at a 30,000 foot view, y'all, one of the reasons why he does this is because these people were facing pressures that tempted them to seek their security, their relief, and their well-being from a different priesthood. Now, at the time, ancient people, whether they were Jews, whether they were Greeks, whether they were from any part of the known world at the time... Everybody was turning to some priesthood to mediate between them and the gods in order to get the blessings of those gods. Everybody was turning to some priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying to the people throughout this book, he's saying to them, no other priesthood can give you the security, the peace or the prosperity that you so desperately desire because they cannot connect you to God. They cannot connect you to God. Only Jesus can fulfill these desires because he's the great high priest 
who connects us to God. And if the writer of Hebrews were to write to us today, those of us living in Washington, D.C., and those of you who are visiting from out of town today, if the writer of Hebrews were going to write a letter to you, I think he would once again drive home the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ because we too are facing pressures that tempt us to seek our security, our relief, and our well-being from a different priesthood. We may not realize it, but just like the ancients, each and every one of us out here are turning to some priesthood to mediate between us and some gods in order to try and get the blessings that those gods promise. Now, here's what I mean for the purposes of our series. When Americans step up to the polls, we're voting to put political leaders into office, okay? But if you think about it theologically and you consider the motives, the hopes, and the concerns of many Americans when it comes time to vote, you'll notice that what they're really trying to do is appoint a priesthood. They're really trying to appoint a priesthood. Many Americans treat our representatives, our senators, and our governors as priests who mediate between the people of America and the gods of America. If you look beneath the surface, you can see that people are looking to priestly politicians in hopes of getting connected to the gods, money, sex, power, autonomy, so that we can receive the blessings that these gods promise. And we're clamoring for these, these priestly politicians to get us connected to get us connected to the American dream, if you will. They are responsible in the eyes of many Americans for mediating between us and our achievement of the American dream. All of these gods, we talk about false gods all the time, idolatry, but we never really consider that every god has some kind of priesthood to facilitate the worship of the devotees. It's the same when it comes to political idolatries. We can sometimes approach our political environment, our politicians, as a priesthood. But if the writer of Hebrews were here this morning, he would say the same thing to us that he said to his original audience. He would say, no other priesthood can give you the security, the peace, or the prosperity that you so desperately want to find. Only Jesus can fulfill these desires because he is the great high priest and mediator between God and humanity. But here's the thing. Thank you. Thank you for the theology lesson, Pastor. What has that got to really do with me? Here's what it has to do with you today, church. After the writer of Hebrews firmly establishes the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, he then makes this transition to show the Christians of that place that they were supposed to be a priestly people. If you have tasted the high priestly ministry of Jesus, what this turns you into is a priestly kind of person, a mediator in the world around you, the kind of person who was found in that space between hostile parties trying to create connection. A priestly people. I want you to look at the language of the text. He wants these Christians to take on a priestly identity. Look at the text, if you would. Verses 21 
through 22. It says this, listen to the language. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a full heart, true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you do you know that this is exactly the language that was used to describe the preparation of Old Testament priests? This is exactly the language. Listen to it. Leviticus nine. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering. Leviticus 21, for no one who has a blemish shall draw near. Exodus 29, then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his sons. Leviticus 8, then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on them. But it doesn't stop there. Exodus 29, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Leviticus 8, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, what we see in Hebrews is that it's through the life, death, burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the great high priest, that we become a kingdom of priests. This has always been God's plan for his people. And that that plan has never been put on pause or been put on hold. It's always been God's vision that we would be a priestly people. But then the question arises, what does that actually mean or look like for us today? How, How should that shape our identity? How should that shape our calling in the world? We have to look at our priestly responsibility, our final point. We got to pick up on the description of the high priestly ministry of Jesus. How do you learn how to be a priestly kind of person, a priestly kind of community in the world today? You got to look back at the high priestly ministry of Jesus that is described all through the book of Hebrews. So let's begin to break this down a little bit and get it on on the on the ground. All right. In chapter two, we are told that Jesus, as the high priest, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The first thing that it means for us to be a priestly people in the world is that we must live in solidarity with people. We must live in solidarity with people. Solidarity is the commitment to the common good because we share this life together and we realize that life in this world was never meant to be a cutthroat, every man for himself, dog eat dog kind of thing. Because Christ is our life, we now use our liberty to work for others' freedom. We now recognize the dignity in each image bearer, no matter how much that image has been defaced and no matter how far the prodigal has wandered from the father. We are to be a people that that is able to recognize the dignity of our fellow image bearers. You know what solidarity is? It's the extension of friendship. 
Have you ever heard the story of Daryl Davis? There was an NPR story about Daryl Davis. Lives in Silver Spring, just north of us. Daryl Davis played piano in a country western band. He's a black man. And it's the story of how one night after a gig, he, he got into a conversation with a guy at the bar. And the guy was astonished that he could play the piano like, like one of his favorite white piano players. And in the course of the conversation, Daryl comes to find out that this guy is a member of the Klan. And they get into this conversation. And by the end of the conversation, Daryl makes plans to extend friendship to this man. And the whole story in the NPR story is about the life of Daryl Davis. And here's the title of it. How one man convinced 200 Ku Klux Klan members to give up their robes. Through the simple act of friendship, he turned people that should be his enemies into his friends. He got them around his table. He invited them into his home. And then after that, they invited him into their homes. And he reasoned with them. And he extended friendship and understanding to them. And when he was critiqued by one black organizational leader, he pulled out the robes of former Klan members and he said this, to the man. He said, this is what I've done to put a dent in racism. I've got robes and hoods hanging in my closet by people who've given up that belief because of my conversation sitting down to dinner. They gave it up. And then he asked the man, how many robes have you collected? You know, it's easy to lob grenades from afar. But we ought to be the kind of people in this political environment that is extending friendship and understanding in solidarity with the people across the aisle, across the street, across the neighborhood. That's the kind of people that we should be because that is what priests do. My friend Scott Sauls wrote a book called Befriend. And in the table of contents... Here are the chapters that he engages. He tells us as Christians, we are responsible to befriend the other, to befriend prodigals and Pharisees. We're supposed to befriend the ones we can't control. We're supposed to befriend the poor. We're supposed to befriend the rich and powerful. We're supposed to, de- to befriend bullies and perpetrators. We're supposed to befriend vulnerable women and the unborn. We're supposed to befriend strangers and refugees, those who vote against us. Don't get quiet, y'all. Come on. We're supposed to befriend people who vote against us. We're supposed to befriend, above all, the God who embraces us. And it's only once you live in friendship with God that you will have the facility to befriend the inconvenient other. Now, that's, that's the thing about Christian love and the Christian ethic. It is very popular these days to pursue diversity. But I think that what most people in our culture do is they pursue a convenient diversity. They pursue, and what I mean by that is this. They'll mix it up with people who are different from them ethnically, but share the same politics, make the same amount of money, and live the same kind of lifestyle. That's called convenient diversity. There are many who will befriend people who who are different ethnically, but but share their politics. It's a convenient diversity. But Christian vision, as it relates to diversity and cross-cultural love, pushes us 
to the inconvenient other. And you know why the God of heaven has the the credibility to call us to that? Because we were the inconvenient other that he befriended in his love. You and I were not convenient friends to make. We're a drag. We cause problems. We're always needing someone to clean up our mess. We're always needing somebody to step in for us. We're always a pain. We're always ruining the party. But Jesus befriended us. We inconvenient people. And by his love, his friendship is transforming us. And one of the most important ways it ought to transform us is in the way that we think about friendship with others, the inconvenient ones. Whoever those people are for you, that's the call of Christian love and friendship. Because this is what priests do, y'all. That's what a priest does. Priests live in solidarity, but also priests are merciful. We must be as quick to envision the work of Jesus for the other as we are to recognize it and claim it for ourselves. And through the book of Hebrews, we see that only Jesus can atone for sin. But the apostle Peter taught us that love covers a multitude of sins. And if Peter were here today, he would tell us, yes, love covers even a multitude of political transgressions. Love covers a multitude of ways in which people vote against us and act against us and speak against us. Love covers a multitude of sins. Think about the witness of mercy in a cancel culture where your past is weaponized against you publicly and your sins follow you to the grave. How many people have we seen get absolutely buried for their mistakes? Careers ruined, no future for them. They are not allowed to have a future because they've been found out. And everyone lives on eggshells and everyone has PR marketing managers to try and spin the dirt. No one can really freely own their dirt because they will be buried under it, never to return. But you know, the kind of people we ought to be in a cancel culture You know who we ought to be? We ought to be a different kind of people because the primary symbol under which we gather is not the American flag. It is the cross. The good news is that the Lord had every right to cancel us, but he chose instead to cancel our sins so that he didn't have to cancel us. That's the good news. And when you know that kind of love for you, then you no longer cancel others. You see them apart from their sins. You're able to see value in the the person behind the sin. That's what forgiveness and love is about. I don't count your sins against you. We must not withhold the very mercy that will actually change them. A lot of times we are angry at people and we're blind because we don't realize that if we would just give up our grudges and our bitterness, our friendship could actually beautify their life. We are supposed to be God's instrument. And yet we find it more comfortable to sit back and light them up. We're called to something different because that's what priests do. That's what a priest does. A priest can envision what an enemy would look like if mercy were to take hold of their life. 
you know, a merciful priest doesn't just see the person stuck in their mess right now. A merciful priest can see a trajectory from here, a trajectory of hope and change, a a trajectory in which a life is taken hold by the love of God. Whether he's a Christian or not, Daryl saw that for these clan members. Daryl Davis saw that for clan members. And if he could see that for clan members, surely we could see that for people across the aisle. This is what a priest does. You know what else priests do? They sacrifice. Jesus made atonement for sin, right? That was the sacrifice of himself. Jesus sacrificed his life to connect us to God and to each other. And you are called to sacrifice. It may be the sacrifice of your time. It may be the sacrifice of your reputation because you are consorting with the enemy. And your people want you to live up into that tribalism that is so quickly given away in our culture today. What are you doing, you traitor? But remember, our chief loyalty, our primary political conviction is that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom we crucified. That's our primary allegiance. So if allegiance to this partisan situation causes me to live outside of my priestly responsibilities, then my higher loyalty is to Jesus, my great high priest. That's my greater loyalty. And I'm going to be as free to hand out critiques of my party as I am to critique theirs. And I'm going to be as willing to own and name the goodness in their party as I am to name the goodness in my own. Jesus is not riding into this world on the back of an elephant or a donkey. This is not how he's rolling in. The scriptures say he's riding in on the clouds to establish his kingdom in the world. And then joy will overflow for all forevermore. And there will be justice and goodness and flourishing and shalom. Everything we could ever have hoped for or dreamed for. But until then, we must live as an anticipation of that future in the way that we engage with other people. It's going to be sacrifice. But look at chapter four, y'all. It says of Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know what else is part of the character of a priest? Empathy and sympathy. Empathy and sympathy. Priestly people are aware emotionally with respect to themselves and with respect to their neighbors. Priests are empathetic and they are attuned to the pain of others. They're able and willing to recognize that pain and then they enter that pain. That's what a priest does. People will doubt our policy ideas. But it must never be the case that they doubt our empathy and love as Christians. It must never be the case that they doubt our empathy and love. We must meet pain and suffering with mercy for everybody always. For everybody always, we meet pain with mercy and empathy and sympathy. We break. We break for people. Our heart feels for them. Even if they brought it on themselves by their own bad decisions or their rejection of God. Because is this not what Christ did with us and continues to do with us? 
We brought it all on ourselves. But he was attuned to our pain. He was able and willing to recognize that pain. And he entered that pain with us in order to heal it. He didn't rush to explain our pain away. He didn't callously disregard that pain. He actually acknowledged that it was worse than we realized. It's worse than you realize. But he showed us that he was going to stay with us and walk us out of the darkness and into the light. If we are so quick to give up on people, it's because we are rejecting our priestly calling. And I'm going to tell you something else. As I look around and I see the state of affairs, the identity politics and the tribalism. I, in my reading on identity politics and tribalism, one of the consistent themes that all of the researchers and writers about identity politics and tribalism say is that the source of identity politics and tribalism is the struggle to be recognized and valued and dignified. That's all. That's what it is. It's the lack of feeling that they're valued, that they have dignity, that they're wanted, that certain groups cluster together and they say, well, we got to fight for our thing because nobody else out there cares. But what if the 65% of professing Christians in America actually decided that they were going to be a priestly people that showed empathy and sympathy to people who felt left out, who felt marginalized, who had no sense of value or dignity in the eyes of others. We might just zap the venom out of the worst, the worst dynamics of the identity politics and tribalism. We might be the very antidote to the ugly that we see. It's not that people are all going to come around and sing Kumbaya and have the same exact politics. But I think that the Christian community, the church, ought to be the kind of people that we share principles, even if we disagree on policies and how that ought to work out. And we can disagree in a way that never short circuits love or undermines our covenant bindedness together, our boundness, that we are one. We are a family in Jesus. Because, you know, priests give away empathy and sympathy and kindness like they're made of the stuff. That's what priests do. That's what we see in Jesus. As you read through his life and his story and the apostles explanation of his life, you're like, isn't there some point at which he's going to run out? <laughs> when is he going to finally say, that's it. Last straw. I'm done with you, sucker. You and I messed up for the last time. I, have you ever wondered that about yourself? And marvel that every morning brings new mercies from a sympathetic high priest? Every day, every minute, and every second of every hour of your life and on into eternity, you have Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you as your great high priest. That is astonishing. And that leads us to chapter five. What do we learn about the way of a priest? Chapter five. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears 
to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Chapter 7. He always lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 9. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see that one of the ways that a priestly people operates is that it intercedes, earnestly going to God in prayer on behalf of others until we break for them. Don't be surprised that things don't get better if you spend more time talking about your political rivals than you do praying for them. If you spend more time talking to people about politics than you do talking to God about your politicians and about your neighbors across the aisle of politics, don't be surprised. This is our responsibility. And you know what? Theologian out of UVA, Charles Matthews, he says this. He says, how are we to live in a pluralistic society as faithful citizens of the kingdom, he says that you must expect not only for God to work in the lives of your neighbors as you engage faithfully, but you should expect that through the encounter with your neighbors, God's going to work in you, that you're not going to be the same and they're not going to be the same if you live up into the beautiful life of someone who is politically engaged with your convictions and your distinctions intact but yet willing to offer the back and forth exchange with people, not needing to win the argument, not needing to defeat people, but to engage them. They can't, anything precious that you have, Christian, they cannot take away because they didn't give it. The world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. So what, what do we have to fear by engaging with people and letting them know how we think about things and, and actually inviting them into our process and getting into their process. Who knows what God might do? We engage in that way, but it's all got to be steeped in prayer. And you notice that prayer of Jesus is the prayer of someone who's brokenhearted, able to see beneath all of the, the politicization to the person underneath with real longings, with real desires, with real fears, with real need. Don't be mad at people. Don't, don't, don't just live in a state of anger toward people. Understand, this is the way that they best know how to make sense of the world and to get what it is they're after. But you have a great high priest who's able to give what their priestly politicians cannot give. And you may be the very person who has the opportunity to introduce them, to engage them. And you know what? Another thing that Chuck Matthews says is that when we engage as Christians and people push back on our faith, what it does is it reveals the strength and the sturdiness of our faith that can hold up to scrutiny. And in that dialogue, there are things that our neighbors are going to help us to see about our own faith. And the way that it works, the way that it plays out into the lives of people, it's actually going to enrich our lives and our faith as we engage with our neighbors. We don't have to be afraid of it. When someone pushes on us, then it forces us to actually examine the things that we hold. And guess what? There are going to be things that we thought were distinctly Christian that were simply distinctly American. And as we're forced to wrestle with it, we come closer to the truth of what the scriptures teach. But it's also going to force us back into our family heritage 
the global and historic church to help us to get perspective on the hot button issues and the way that Christians ought to think about things like money and sex and, and immigrants and neighbors and all different kinds of challenging, sticky uh, conversations. We ought to be a prayerful people. Prayer, y'all, listen, does not replace action. It empowers action and resurrects the passive. That's what prayer does. If we spent as much time talking to God about our politicians and partisan rivals as we spend slamming them, we might turn America right side up in some kind of small way. I'm closing with this. Uh, Christian philosopher Jamie Smith, he talks about, he has this phrase that he talks about uh, that's helpful for us to think about in terms of engaging politically. He, ta- he calls it calculated ambivalence. And what I think he means by that is this. Christians engage politically with calculated ambivalence, which means this. We have proper expectations about the limitations of what government can do. Government is not the priesthood that we most deeply need. Government was never meant to bear the weight of ultimacy. Government can't settle issues of identity and, and, and deep desire for human beings. The government can't provide that. It was never meant to. It cannot bear the weight of ultimacy. And so that's where the ambivalence comes from. But it's calculated because we still want to be engaged as faithful, as faithful citizens to take responsibility because we have a priestly role. We're priests when we go into the into the voting booth. We don't just vote for ourselves and our own interests and the interests of our tribes. A lot of Christians are so caught up in fighting for their rights. I don't see that anywhere in the life of the great high priest. He's not fighting for his rights. He's surrendering his rights to fight for us. Christians don't need to fear if we are marginalized in society. That might be one of the greatest gifts that the American government ever gives us. The church has been most profoundly relevant when it has been on the margins. It's been its most faithful when it has been on the margins and it has been true to the, to the facts in church history that the closer that the church has gotten to the center of power, it's a tightrope. It's, it's, it's a razor's edge. And faithfulness often is found in short supply. We must confess that sin, but we must not fear marginalization politically. We must so be, be so fiercely for our neighbors. And so fiercely committed to our historic Orthodox principles in the Christian faith. And we must wrestle with those things when it comes to how we vote. I can't tell you who to vote for. That's not my job. That's beyond the authority of my office. But you must carry these things into your consideration. You can be politically engaged without being enmeshed or cynical. The final word of Hebrews to us, friends, draw near in faith. As a priestly people, on behalf of your neighbors and your political rivals, hold fast the confession of our sin-canceling faith that speaks of gospel love. Hold fast that confession. Don't waver. And stir up one another to love and good works. It's in this way that we will be 
the most useful, beautiful, witness-bearing community that we can be. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.